Hi, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined by the amazing James Allison. James is a Catholic theologian, a priest and an author. Um, he's done a marvellous job of bringing the work of the great French thinker René Girard to the wider public, wrestling with his work in a distinctly theological manner and showing how rich it can be for the Christian tradition. Just then, if I might ask you about Girard, then what drew you first to him and some of those central concerns that we see in your work? Gosh, well, when I first uh, came across uh, Girard, I think one of the first things that struck me reading him was because of his understanding of how human desire works, um, I found myself being read by him. It was as though someone had told me who I was. Someone was, was telling me who I am. Um, it's, a, it's a strange sensation when you realize that, so, that the person you're reading is reading you rather than the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> someone, someone who tells you a great deal of truth about who you are. So that was my first sensation. The second thing was I understood fairly quickly that because of his understanding of the scapegoat mechanism, he'd opened up a completely new paradigm for understanding Christ's death and why that is salvation. Um, entirely outside the, the previous patterns, which particularly in the Protestant world, but to some extent in the Catholic world, involved um, it being necessary for Jesus to die to pay the price for uh, some sins in order to satisfy a wrathful, a wrathful father. Um, and uh, Girard's understanding opens a completely different approach on exactly the same reality. But once, which you, when you start to sink into it, it makes so much more sense of all the scriptural texts uh, than, than the previous uh, paradigm, if you like, the previous model. So, so that was the, the second thing. Then the third thing was, as, as I began to read Gerald, it suddenly made the texts of scripture come alive. You suddenly could see that there was an inner dynamic to what was going on there that made sense. It wasn't, you know, just these ancient texts that you needed endless, rather dry archaeological expertise to mm. extract a tiny little bit of meaning out of them here and there. But that actually there was something going on there that was live, living, life-giving, and, um, you know, just made sense of so much of what was going on. So so that was, uh, that was my uh, experience. Thank you. <laughs> and um next if we might can can we talk about jesus the forgiving victim and um some of your works then so that that book is comprised of four books of essays and is an excellent introduction to the christian faith and um, we begin with book one sta starting human staying human and um the introduction to the Christian faith starts then with the assumption that as we become more aware of the dimensions of being human that we in fact know already, so then the life of faith which God births within us will become richer and easier to explore and to live. Can you tell us a bit about how this um, theological anthropology plays out and how it contrasts with other worldviews or indeed the Christianity that we maybe used to? Well, strangely, I think it's, I mean, it's very traditional, um, but it it does assume that it's uh, that being human is a good thing, um, and that uh, Christian faith is received to us bodily, if you like. It's it's bodies in relationships that are being moved 
by the Spirit of God. Um, and so it's how, um, yeah, how we're brought to life by having various different human dimensions of ourselves, including our memory, um, our capacity to imagine, all of these things uh, brought to life. Uh, how we become better storytellers. And th that element, I think, is very important. Imagining, remembering that we we never start at the beginning. We always, you know, nice, tidy, logical people always think, well, one must start at the beginning. But in fact, we're always interrupted in reality. You know, we're always starting to tell a story in the middle after we've reached a certain place of understanding where we begin to start to look back and begin to make sense of where we are. So we're heading forward, looking backwards the whole time. And of course, the gospel presumes that. It's the interruption in our midst of someone who alters our storytelling capacity and creates a new capacity for story in our midst um, by readjusting all our relationships together. That's what the crucified and risen Lord appearing to the apostolic witnesses after the resurrection does. And the gospels explain how that happens. Well, you can actually see the dynamic at work. Once you start to read it in that way, you say, oh gosh, yes, yes, I can see this is, this is the dynamic they were trying to point out uh, too. So it's, it's a much more dynamic understanding of, if you like, religious learning. It's us being brought into being through a shift in our relationships with each other that is being taught by Jesus. Wonderful. And then in book two, you say God, not one of the gods, and you approach the scriptures in a conscientious but um, relaxed manner to get us inside some of these key issues um, that the, the, the writers were wrestling with. So we read the scriptures through the eyes of the forgiving victim as St. Luke teaches us to. What does that mean? And um, how does this maybe contrast with um, our more common approaches to the Bible again, I guess? Um, hmm. Well, you, you don't ask the small questions. <laughs> um, uh, so I, th the, yeah. Because the Bible is a book, or at least it's presented to us as a book, we tend to treat it alongside other books uh, as if bookishness were a particular quality of learning, if you like, how we learn principally is through texts. Mm -hmm. And particularly when it comes to the Bible, legal texts. Um, and that's a very misreading understanding of the Bible to not say that there aren't legal texts in it, but they're not legal in the way that modern legal texts are. This is not, as it were, God's constitutional law book. Um, <laughs> rather, and I think this is an important thing, it's a series of monuments to God interacting with people over time. Like it's the things that are thrown up as a result of God having interacted with people over time, as people have been able to bear witness to it. Um, and this was, this was something that, thank heavens, was brought out really, really well by Vatican II. Vatican II, by uh, understanding that in Verbum, in, in De Verbum, uh, brought out how it's deeds and words rather than words and deeds. Um, 
is what God what what God does that becomes speakable. Um, that's the the process, which culminates in what Jesus did and the speaking that become becomes possible uh, from that. But so it means beginning to have a start to have a look at the texts of the Hebrew Scriptures as the way the undoing of death and sacrifice by Jesus, by Jesus dying for us, is something which is being prepared for throughout the scriptures as what we call monotheism starts to become visible. So it's, it's if you like, it becomes the texts which bear witness to a process, a dynamic that's going on that uh, was fulfilled in a certain sense at Pentecost. Um, when the living presence of God came amongst us itself to teach us from within and to take us as insiders into the life of God, rather than being something which pointed to that from outside um, and in which we were dependent on people authoritatively passing us on from outside. So my first task, if you like, in that, section of Jesus is, is attempt to in a sense get to get people stop being frightened of the of the book of the Bible as if it was a series of of very nasty pieces of violence that are somehow God threatening punishment and to begin to see how it in fact it's the undoing from within of precisely that violence and it that violence becomes clearer and more exact the more you're got off it in other words, uh, it becomes clearer and clearer what's going on and how God has nothing to do with violence. The closer you get to the final undoing of the violent picture of God, which emerges when Jesus is the victim of our violence and gives himself into that violence so as to let us off it. Uh, the undoing from within, if you like, of our world of violence. So it's a massive, it's a massive project, uh, if you like, of us God teaching us not to project our violence onto God okay. so that we can learn who we are and cease to be violent with each other. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, uh, in a nutshell. That's, uh, Beautiful, yeah. Thank you, James. And um, you then go on in book three to speak about this difference that Jesus makes. So as you're already speaking to it there, but are there, are there any other ways that we might um, consider about how this increased awareness of being forgiven um, allows us um, for our participation in a new unity and how does it um, call us um, out to form a new people distinct from who we were? Yeah, well, let, let's, let's, let's look at it this way. If the standard way of forming groups, which we see in all our cultures and all our societies, modern and ancient, is uh, to gang together with a group of the like-minded over against someone. That's typically how it works. Um, you know, and that's short term, that's very successful. You get a whole lot of people worked up about, I don't know, immigrants, gypsies, whatever. Uh, you name, you name your, uh, your, your marginal group that can be got in the back of the neck and uh, you can get unity over against it. And for the short time, that's very successful, except that it's a fake unity because it, nothing really has been resolved in terms of peaceful living together. Whatever the real issues about peaceful living have been um, put to one side 
to enable people to have a quick shot of of unity and feeling good about themselves. Um, and that's idolatry, <laughs> quite simply. And what the gospel offers is, is the reverse of that. It's Jesus occupying the space of the cast out one who gave us our fake unity. And saying, okay, you're inclined to do that. Now I'm occupying this space, so you don't need to do this anymore. And furthermore, any of you who see that this is what you're doing, you can be forgiven. I'm not doing this to rub you in your face. I'm doing it so that you can actually start becoming relaxed about how you come together and start to be able to construct ways of being together that are for each other rather than simply against the convenient other. In other words, as former persecutors, you can only build temporary violent forms of unity. As a forgiven former persecutor, you can start to be brought into being with other former forgiven persecutors into a new way of being human together. And that is what is meant by the church. That's what this new community is, people who are reconciled to God. Excellent. And um, in book four, Unexpected Insiders, then you speak to this. And um, I want to ask you, what does it mean then to be inducted into this human story in which death doesn't have the final say? And um, maybe even counterintuitively, what are some of the main challenges that actually flow, flow from this? Well, I think inductively is the word because it's, this, is the work of, uh, this is the work of the spirit. Um, allowing us, taking us on the inside of the project and allowing us to become someone whom we didn't know we were, which turns out to be who we really are. Um, and this happens in a number of ways um, through uh, some of the examples I give, through prayer, uh, through texts. Those are the two that I, I think I concentrate on uh, most. Uh, these are parts of the being brought into that new community. And prayer is the way in which we have the, our pattern of desire altered so that the one who desires through us is not the usual bunch of rivals and enemies who in fact run us, you know, because the more you get locked into conflict with someone, the more they in fact run you. You become a, you become a, a, a symptom of them. And you know, the more the more people become in rivalry with each other, the more like each other they become, the more hooked on each other they become. Uh, strangely, the more dependent for who they are. Whereas the whole point of the spirit of God is the spirit of God is actually the undoing of that. So we can become someone relatively free of rivalry, start actually imitating models rather than being stuck in uh, fights with rivals. So that's one of the ways we're brought into the inside, as we're able to do that. So we're able to start to stretch out to people in need without feeling that they're threatening to us, um, uh, which is, enables charity and mutual upbuilding uh, to go on. Um, so that's one of the things that goes on with, uh, uh, with prayer. The central, if you like, for me, the central point, which I, from what I can remember, that I bring out in the joy, in, not in the joy, in, in that, um, in the session on prayer in, in Jesus the Being Victim, is how dependent we are on approval uh, for our sense of being, and how what 
Jesus is teaching about prayer, go into your pantry or larder, go into the room which has no windows. So when you shut the door, no one can see you and you can't see anyone, which means that for once in your life, you stop acting up to try and curry favor or, or attention, to try and be in the good books of someone. You're no longer acting out so as to please someone else. And that's a difficult space. That's a difficult space because suddenly you're in detox from all the sources of approval that you normally rely on uh, in, order to, uh, in order to flourish. You think, if they approve of me, then I'll become someone. I'll do what they think is good, and then they'll like me, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's how we survive. We, we depend on the approval of others. Jesus is the point of saying, you know, if you do these things, I tell you, you will have your reward, but it'll be the wrong reward. It'll be too cheap a reward. They will give you your identity, but it will be the identity of a puppet of their desires. Whereas if you spend time going through the detox of that, you will find yourself after a period of loss and disorientation and not knowing who you are and wondering whether you'll ever be approved of by anybody, discovering yourself a son or daughter of God, because that is the one who sees in secret, who brings you into being. In other words, Jesus doesn't say you must give up this need for approval. He says, of course you need approval, but look for it in the right place. <laughs> don't, 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 don't get junk approval. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I love that um, emphasis in your work and in Father Henri Nouwen as well about um, the beloved and the prodigal son. I think that you both bring that really to the fore. And especially now, maybe um, in the internet age where people are tempted, I guess, even physiologically, psychologically and everything with the way the media is, the social media in particular is structured. You're constantly getting those hits of dopamine and different or whatever it is, serotonin. And you're constantly looking for that validation with likes and, um, yeah. tweets and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, thank you for that, James. And um, that- Well, um, yeah, it, it's independently of media because it happens in real life also. Let me just think of- yeah. Yeah. And um, that book you mentioned there, The Joy of Being Wrong, Original Sin Through... Yes, that was a, a, a slip up a slip <laughs> of the tongue. It was an, an, earlier, an earlier book, yeah. Uh, no, um, can we speak about that? I want to ask you... Of course, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I think in there you also overturn many of our um, misconceptions, I would say. So um, using the wonderful work of uh, theological anthropology, you look at this original sin in light of the resurrection, um, why is original sin then a vital perspective on what it is to be human whenever it's seen with resurrection eyes? Um, okay, I think the reason I think it's important is because what it's saying, and this is uh, this sounds counterintuitive, so you have to allow me to follow through. What it's saying is that. Uh, forgiveness is prior to creation. In other words, it's not the case that there is something which is basically good and stable, and that has been unfortunately screwed up. And now um, uh, we have been forgiven by some sort of divine decree or act or paying the price. So now, as long as we behave ourselves, uh, our original sin can be forgiven and we can become good again. Okay, that's very often how, how it's presented. And the reason I think that's misleading is that it makes original sin dominate the story rather than making forgiveness dominate the story. And the whole point of the New Testament is that the ultimate reality of God since before the creation of the world 
is bringing us into being as ones who can forgive and be forgiven. In other words, uh, original sin, the doctrine of original sin is, if you like, the way of saying your creation starts in the middle and it starts from the process of being forgiven. Humans are the animal for whom being created depends on forgiveness. Uh, and the reason I think that's important is because it actually brings moralism to an end. <laughs> if we're all part of a screw-up, then the adventure of creation is the undoing of the shortcut that we've got trapped in and the opening up of the fullness of something. And we're being gradually let out of it. And that seems to be to be the, the gospel picture. The gospel, you know, this is how St. Paul talks about a creation bowed down in futility, but now has been opened up so that we can become the, have the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that's a very ancient Hebrew way of understanding it, as though uh, creation bound down into futility is uh, everything is is there but not quite there. It's there's a kind of an uh, and that uh, is something that we are tied down into. And that what Jesus said, that being tied down into it was very much linked to the world of sacrifices, repeated sacrifices, and hoping something would turn up. But the, what Jesus is occupying that space, undoing it, he opened that up so that now creation is, is open, it's alive. We are on the inside of it. Um, that element of frustration, of vanity is, is over. Um, and that therefore, you know, that therefore original, original sin, rather than being some curse or uh, some, something that we ought to feel terribly guilty about, no, the whole point of it is simply saying, Forgiveness is prior to creation. Your access to being created is through forgiveness. This is what humans are. Humans aren't people who were born good and then each one does something terribly wrong. The way in which humans actually become human is through forgiving and being forgiven. Um, and this is, uh, this is very counterintuitive because we say, but how can you be forgiven before being created? Uh, when there's not, there's not a you there, uh, to be forgiven, is a, uh, what what it looks like in the midst of time, from our point of view, is not what it looks like from from God's uh, God's point of view. God doesn't have a point of view. What it looks like from from God's act to, uh, acting in our midst, it talks about the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and understanding that the self giving that came was manifest in Jesus was always there. <laughs> It was always there. It was there before Adam, it was there before Cain, it was there before Abel. And it became manifest in our midst. But that was the, the fullness of the dynamic of creation that became manifest. Excuse Nicholas while he jumps off. He's decided that he's had enough of my lap. Um, uh, Nicholas is the French bulldog who's just left my lap for, the, for those of you who are watching and weren't introduced to him at the beginning. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful, James. And um, there's something else that I think that really comes across the um, maybe an ecumenical uh, emphasis. So in some ways, I think you and Gerard bring East and West together again by applying mimetic theory to original sin. Do we then fill out this um, older, maybe Western picture that has become more popular, maybe after St. Augustine, not to make him a whipping way and bring that into contact with theosis and um, 
basically what you're saying there? Yeah, I mean, uh, each, each one of our traditions has their, um, what's their word, their way of grabbing everything and turning it into moralism both west and east so i don't think i don't think either side has particular bragging rights to brownie points in this yeah. <laughs> in this area though each side likes to show how it's better than the other um really the question of allowing the gospel to be a gospel of grace and for it continuously to be a gospel of grace and therefore for our learning process not to be one of moralism but to be one of being brought to life that's a, that's a difficult package to keep alive from generation to generation. Um, and I think that it's difficult in the East and it's difficult in the West. I, I think that words like theosis uh, are interpreted right help, um, but I'm not, I'm not uh, what's the word, glistening eyed about how wonderful it is in some places, how, how much greener the grass is on other hills. Uh, grass is pretty brown on most hills at this stage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I um, I have s similar <laughs> views and the experience to back it up. I think so. Um, yeah, definitely. Thanks for that, James. And um, how then do we see anew the central doctrines um, of the Christian faith from this perspective? Or are there any examples which you like, would you like to mention to bring the point home further? Or I think you've done a wonderful job already. <laughs> We'll, we'll fill fill the question out a bit so as to give me more of an idea idea of where you would like me to. Um, uh, I think to, to, to go. I think one element might be the more mythic origin story of individualism and enlightenment that we have that has maybe come into the church from outside the culture, maybe to Rousseau and people like that. And this obviously affects us um, how we perceive the gospel. I suppose. Or is there, are there any tangents like that? Yeah, well, of course, I mean, the, you know, in one sense, of course, individualism and the Enlightenment, and so they are, they, these are, in some sense, bastard children of revelation. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's not as though those, would have, those could have arisen without uh, the gospel. But the fact is that they're partial receptions uh, yeah. uh, 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 of the gospel, and in some senses, that's that's been the way. That's been the way that we have. Our culture has been a series of partial receptions of the gospel that are then nudged out by other partial receptions of the gospel that are uh, opposed elements. Um, so for me, the question is how to keep alive the central dynamic uh, that both uh, shows how we are being brought into being as selves who are in one sense unique bodies but how that's not the same as being uh, an individual that's what what Girard calls an interdividual in other words it's our in our relationship with others that we become who we are it's the in-between that makes us who we are not the inside <laughs> uh, and this is uh, this is something which individualism finds very difficult because you know the individualism myth is that of the self-starter it's more difficult and you have to be a great deal more humble um, if you realize that actually it's in your relationship with someone else that you come to be who you are. Um, and in fact, it's all your relationships with other people that are turning you into who you are. And that as those become relationships of love, of compassion, of mercy, and so forth and so forth, it's actually you who are being let go uh, uh, as you let go outside yourself. 
but that makes us much more malleable, you know, us as personal histories, personally embodied narrative histories, which is what we are, it makes us much more uh, vulnerable, much more precarious, much more malleable. But that's a good thing. Um, uh, but it also brings out how, um, if you like, how certain stories, for instance, about our supposed goodness or our profound badness are cur turn out curiously to be ways of protecting us against ourselves rather than allowing us to undergo this process of being transformed from within relationally uh, with each other. And I think that's one of the, the challenges for us, how to keep that dynamic, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit ultimately is, is what it is, alive in enabling us to be, be brought into being by bringing each other into being. Um, and how that involves inhabiting a dangerous world where the reverse can happen. Uh, we can shrink back into binary oppositions which seem more fun and sexy and give us a, a quick fix of identity. Um, but ultimately are self-destructive and dangerous for other people. And we're clearly going through a particularly nasty phase of that in Western so-called democracies uh, recently um, with, with a very clear return to, to binary and fear-ridden uh, identities. So, um, yeah, now I, th I think that absolutely central to that is how, how we present in our preaching, in our living out of the, the gospel, the life of our Lord as one who occupies the place of shame such that we no longer need to be triggered by our shame and our fear, but able to inhabit, accept, and therefore become precarious, vulnerable, and therefore able to stretch out towards others and learn. Um, that seems to me to be what's central. The undoing of sacrificial mechanisms enables learning because it makes people vulnerable and cooperative, which is what allows learning to happen. The recrudescence of sacrificial mechanisms gives people hard knowledge, things that they know apparently, but which are all forged against other people. And that's a fast route to conspiracy theory where you know in advance whatever the evidence. Mm -hmm because you are right. And it's much more important that you and your group be right than that anyone learn anything. Um, so, you know, I think that really central to where we are at the moment in, in, in all our countries is how are we going to recover the relationship between uh, the sacrificial world in which we become good sacrifices with Jesus as our sacrifice making us good or Jesus' sacrifice where he gives himself into our midst and we recognize ourselves as former persecutors who are able to sit and stand in our shame and therefore learn to collaborate and cooperate together. Uh, it's, a, it's a rather different mixture, different picture of flourishing, but I think it's an absolutely vital one. Excellent. So Thank you. Going, going forward. And um, another key revolution that you focus on is how we view desire, which I think is most important. Um, how are we to understand desire in the triune God, maybe contrasted with our idolatrous desires and I guess those notions of autonomy and things that we were speaking about? Well, that's a, that's a slow one. Um, that takes us back to, to what we were talking about before, because, you know, my desire, I understand, uh, the specifically human uh, 
set of uh, longings that are no, that are more than just appetites, um, which happened when we ceased to be run merely by appetite and instinct as as uh, higher apes, and actually found that there was a group way of being together that caused how each one of us was brought into being and started to, to learn and touch along. In other words, desire is how the social other reproduces itself in us. Um, it starts with the other and we are brought into it by imitation. That's, that's what we are as humans, we're particularly good imitators. We're much better imitators than any other animal. Um, so through imitation, our social other reproduces itself in us, makes us, if you like, good member by learning to do what the others do, by picking up the mixture of sound and gesture that eventually constitutes language so that we're able to speak and communicate and pass a huge amount of information to each other. All of that depends on desire, what Girard calls mimetic desire, uh, the capacity to imitate. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. Human desire is essentially a good thing. <laughs> um, it's what enables us to be brought into uh, viable social life with each other. But it's also at the same time a dangerous thing because while imitation is good and through it we learn and come together um, a huge amount by comparison with our nearest ape relatives, they also do to a certain extent, but nothing like to the same extent as we do. It's also terribly dangerous because the more we imitate, the more we run the risk of rivalry. Because the more you imitate someone, the closer you get to be like them. And the closer you get to be like them, the more risk there is that your capacity to get whatever it is they want will be as great as or greater than theirs. So designated objects which were teaching you how to learn something can suddenly become something that you need to fight about with. <laughs> and it's very, very easy that your model becomes your rival. And then the very same passion that made you a good disciple makes you a bitter, a bitter rival. And this affects every aspect of our life, our emotional life, our sexual life, our digestive life. Every one of these, uh, every one of our human instincts is affected by this danger of imitation becoming rivals. So I mean, why this matters so much for the gospel is um, that it's as we learn to imitate in a self-giving way that undoes rivalry, we find ourselves actually able to love and do each other good. We find ourselves taken out of rivalry with each other. And of course, that's what uh, Jesus did. He made that possible by going up to his death for us so that death no longer needs to be a concern about rivalry. Because ultimately, death is the ultimate guarantor of rivalry. You need to fight and you need to be the one who wins. If you don't need to win, you're no longer run by death. And so you don't need to be a rival uh, to anyone. So you can learn to love and you can start to st stand up for each other, all of those things. Um, so that's that's something about how that, that pattern, the undoing of, uh, of 
rivalry works and how that important that is in, in desire. And after that, well then, the, the other forms of desire, our, our eros can be trained so that we actually start to be able to want to build each other up rather than to devour each other. This can have physical consequences. Our eros can be turned into agape. It can become agape over time in bodily relationships. All of this is a process of learning. What we would now call a process of sanctification. Um, but that's uh, that's how this that's how this works. Yeah. Sorry, was that was that where you wanted to? No, that's to perfect. Yeah, thank you, James. I don't know if the the next part of that. I don't know if I have a coherent enough question, but I'll try. It, I guess because it's pretty revelatory to me in some ways. So, um, I'm wondering how can we um can you describe maybe how Gerard's work exposes the myth that we are primarily rational individuals i think you're already hitting on that and um how whenever we apply mimetic theory to evolution this shows that um the binary is a sacred and um survival or violence or in um, contact from the beginning of history itself and um how that desire to sacrifice to the gods has always been there i think in our maybe overly rationalist conception, we don't understand that. And then the political order and everything has this sacrificial element and we're just baffled why are people not behaving in a rational manner? In a rational way, yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it is true. I mean, that's one, that's one of the things which Girard uh, brings out very well, as does a good deal of, of modern psychology and psychiatry, which is that uh, we are relational before we are rational. In other words, what makes it possible for you or I to have uh, what we call the use of reason is not something separate from the whole process of us being brought into collaborative relational being with others. It's the process of allowing ourselves to have been given a memory, a narrative capacity over time that enables us to become able to start to say, I want this, I do that, you do this, why do you do that, etc., etc. In other words, <laughs> um, and, and I think that this is, this is a fundamental distinction. People who think that rationality is somehow independent of relationality are always going to be surprised by every form of reality because uh, it's always how people are relationally that throws up how they talk rationally. And therefore, what we call uh, rationality at its best is always self-critical relationality. <laughs> uh, how we learn to work out what's really going on despite the uh, first impressions which usually come about through bad ways of being together. And it's why you know generally successful scientific projects are always the fruit of years of collaboration and learning how not to be rivals with each other. So as precisely to be able to see what is in front of your nose. When you're all rivals, you can't see what's in front of your nose. You can only see each other. Uh, a fantastic example, just the last week, the, the reaction of the, the governor of Texas to um, the effects of the, of the snowstorm and blizzard on the Texas uh, energy grid. Okay, the Texas energy grid has been entirely dependent on a very particular series of deliberate political and economic decisions concerning quick money making and uh, profit making, not providing a resilient, uh, not providing a resilient state. 
In other words, it was always a partisan effort rather than a service. And then, of course, when it's actually hit by something that wasn't imagined, uh, rather than the first reaction to it being, okay, we're in its mess, this mess, let's see how we can uh, get out of this together. The first reaction, and the, always the easiest and sexiest reaction, is immediately to find someone else to blame. Rather than saying, stop, we must undo the way in which our previous way of being together has in fact caused this terribly dangerous and difficult problem for all of us. Mm -hmm. People would far rather, it's far rather to have the quick shot of cheap meaning that seems to resolve a particular problem now than actually spend time trying to work out what is objective, what is real, what is not a function of immediate relational solutions. I think that, that for us humans, that's a terribly difficult thing to do. Uh, it's always easier to resolve things by a fight within the group than it is to say, let's give up fighting the group and have a look and see what's actually there, whether it's climate change or an attack by fire ants or whatever the, <laughs> you know, whatever the presenting issue is or, or, uh, or a COVID, you know, uh, an invisible virus. Always the first, our first preference is relational, uh, a relational resolution, a quick relational resolution that makes us feel good rather than uh, the slow, let's get our relationships together in such a way that we may actually look at what is going on rather than merely see ourselves and our enemies in the battle. Uh, time and time again, the relational, we assume and we make use of uh, the intellect, uh, reason as something weaponized within pre-existing relations rather than seeing how we might shift relationality in order to have clearer insight into the real. Most fascinating. Thank you, James. And um, I want to ask you next about something that David Keeley has spoken about, if I can maybe articulate this. Um, he seems to suggest that we're in this new and darker age of the antichrist in a very nuanced way i must say it's um, maybe struggling to get it so um do you see this kind of playing out where it's harder to pretend precisely because of christ's revelation um that the victims are guilty and we have to resort to ever more elaborate lies to sustain the deception even from i guess pre-christian times or whenever i guess they knew they were religious whereas nowadays we don't know that we're religious i guess again speaking to that overly rationalistic conception of ourselves yeah um hmm. i mean i haven't read david Cayley's latest uh, latest book which i think has just come out which which deals with this so i, I i'm not in, i'm not well informed to be able to answer you sure. um uh, very exactly but if what you're talking about is, if you like, um, the, the way in which uh, victimization has become everybody's game. Uh, in other words, uh, the way you try to get brownie points is by playing the victim. Um, 
Yes, of course, that's that's uh, that is uh, the uh, anti-Christian in the, in the in the very specific sense. It's it's the it's the mockery. It's the the mocking mimicry of of, of Christ. It looks like looks like the real thing. It sounds like the real thing, and in fact, is exactly the reverse of the real <laughs> uh, 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 of the real thing. We may love to take it back to Knowing Jesus, which was the first book I read, if you're this early and now classic, I would say, book. Um, it asks us what it is to know Jesus. So you introduce us to many um, new theological insights, I suspect, or I think, and um, one of which is the intelligence of the victim. What does this mean and how does it differ from our um, maybe standard worldly logic and our view of history that we're sort of hitting up before? Well... If you like, when when I when I coined that that term, the intelligence of the victim, and this this is roughly what I what I meant about it. I was thinking about how, in the gospel, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. He's entirely clear sighted about it. Uh, he knows the mechanisms that are going to lead to that, not because of some you know esoteric knowledge, but because he understands. What it is to be human and how humanity works. So he's like a scout deep in enemy enemy country, reconnoitering. Uh, and at the beginning of the gospel, he can see when uh, the lynch is threatening to happen. He's able to stand outside it on various occasions. He's able to stand back. He knows when to provoke, when not to provoke. In his own words, being uh, as what's the word as as innocent as a as a dove and as wise as a serpent um this is the scout in enemy territory who knows exactly how the system works and who knows that he is going to give himself into the midst of that to actually explode the whole system um, but he's doing so peacefully and lovingly uh, and yet with a genuine intelligence understanding of what's going on I, but and I, when i say genuine intelligence, i mean a human understanding uh, of what's going on not is uh, esoteric information um, but a genuine something which understands the structure of being human the structure of human societies uh, how people are going to behave the, the mechanisms that kick into play <laughs> the dynamics that are at work um, so it seems to me that that's something which is part of what the holy spirit teaches us and gives us is uh, takes us into the intelligence of the victim it makes us aware uh, that we are very often in enemy territory, not because the people we're dealing with are our enemies, nor because the world is an evil place, neither of which is true, but because the mechanisms and the dynamics which are those of this world are those which ultimately tend to cast out. And the question is how to give ourselves into this generously, unfrighteningly, in such a way that it brings other people to life, and make our lives of a gift in the midst of this. Uh, and it's not easy for any of us because we all start on the wrong side. Unlike, unlike Jesus, we all start on the wrong side. We all start as people who, in order to be taken into this vision, need to undergo being forgiven first. So it's a process of learning how to step out of the mechanisms and then see our way free to be able to give ourselves non-resentfully into uh, what's going on and realize that this is a being brought to life and it's an enormous privilege and a joy something like that it does that beautiful yeah 
And um, you also, I think, bring together what has been a very divisive thing between Catholic and Protestants in some ways, like I was speaking about before between East and West, that the emphases come together. So you look at um, justification by faith in a really refreshing way. Can you tell us a bit about how we might understand this considering the intelligence of the victim then? Uh, gosh, again, you don't ask the, you don't ask the, light, the light questions. Um, <laughs> and it's such a long time since I wrote Knowing Jesus that I, well, I, 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 can, I can picture the, the, the chapter vis visually in my mind. I, I'm not sure that I have immediate access to it intellectually. Um, I think that what I wanted to, to show um, is that it's, as we see the, the one who occupies the space of being thrown out by us, so as we're aware that that one has occupied that space generously, we suddenly realize that he didn't do that in order to rub our noses in it. It wasn't, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have you kill me so that I can then say, nah, you're all awful, uh, as some form of, you know, sort of revenge. He's saying, I know you're going to do this. I know that that's, uh, that's what you do. And this is not a good game for you. Ultimately, you destroy yourselves like this. This is not a good game. So I'm going to occupy that space. I know exactly what you're, what you're going to do. I know exactly what it's going to look like. And then you're going to be able to perceive me thereafter as one who is giving the entire thing for you. And the moment you realize that this whole thing was done for you, the moment you realize that this was a gift rather than a, an accusation, they would say, oh my God, he likes us. <laughs> he wasn't out to get us. He just actually doesn't give a damn that we're caught up in this, uh, this trap. He regards it as of no importance. He passes over all that we've done, pass over our transgressions. But on the contrary, it's because he wants us to be brought to life. And once we understand that his being in that place was an act of love and love for us. Well, then we start to be brought alive and we find ourselves being realigned, which is what justify essentially means, realigned into the life of the kingdom, into the new creation, able to start to be able to uh, recreate relationships with other people and become who we really were meant to be all along. And this is a gift. And of course, uh, it's not something which is uh, a decree. It's a real fact. So it actually genuinely leads us to, uh, to become more loving, to actually to be able to start as a result of our faith, having works. <laughs> and that's the, you know, that's the point. Justification by, by faith is true. What it does, is it enables us to actually become people who find ourselves able to love. Uh, and this is, uh, if you like, that's, that seems to me to be the, 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 uh, the, the, central, the central thing, but it's someone who's 
doing, that's always a group thing. It's not, I've done this to you as an individual and now you're individually forgiven. So now you're, you can be a good self-righteous bastard and, and judge all the other people. It's, <laughs> which is very often how it comes across. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, I've done this for you, plural, which means each one of you individually can now have the whole of their being together redone. And that's what I'm doing for you, for each one of you, in and between and with each other. That's how you're being brought together into the kingdom of God. Excellent. Thank you, James. Um, just moving on to another facet of your work, which I think is most important and profound, the focus on eschatology and taking it away from scaremongering about the future and so on. So you've written a few books like Raising Abel, the recovery, recovery of the eschatological imagination. And Raising Abel is a theological exploration of a huge change of mind, the change which the apostolic group underwent because of the resurrection. And you reveal that um, how that paradigm can transform the world today, especially in relation to the thought of Shirar, who we've mentioned. So first then, um, how has the God who was revealed by Jesus, again, you've spoke to this already, subverted the violent language imagery and um, expectations of the early Christians even? Gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that we find, I think, difficult to, to imagine or to remember, which is that the, um, how do I, how do I, how do I say this? Um, we typically imagine the account of Jesus's life, death and resurrection as being kind of he had a good time teaching and that was fine and then he had this rough incident uh, between good friday on, on good friday and that was a bit of a bit of a downer but luckily there was a happy ending uh, to the story on easter sunday and he got better and so all's okay okay now the the gospel accounts um do not show that at all the gospel accounts if anything show quite how clear jesus made what, how much the purpose of what he was doing was going towards the ending, um, was going towards Good Friday, and the, how difficult the disciples uh, found it to understand and how they ran away and all of that. But then the, what happened on Easter Sunday, rather than being a happy ending, was initially perceived by them as a terrifying beginning. Because it was something for which there was no precedent because all of us uh, tend to have stories for which the principal parameter is death. <laughs> you know, we know how to tell stories that end in death. We know how to tell stories that start with death, like detective stories. Uh, the place of death in stories is enormously important. And in fact, the place of death in all our cultures is enormously important because it kind of gives a guarantee and a stability and it teaches us how to behave and to mourn uh, and so on and so forth. And suddenly you have someone come into their midst, blow apart the central mechanism for killing people, in other words, the scapegoat mechanism, and then show themselves as not dominated by death. Well, one of the first things that this does is it completely throws uh, a spanner in the works 
of all our normal storytelling capacity, we suddenly become aware that there is a, another force, another dynamic that is far greater than anything we, uh, we have known that is at work, that has nothing to do with death and that is making itself available to us for the first time as human story. This is shocking. This is what is, if you like, eschatological. Uh, it's the realization that there is a, a dimension to creative reality which our story had no room for. And therefore, the, that reality is going to shake all our human forms of togetherness, of, of culture, of solidity, of security. All of that is going to be shaken. Because never again will we be able to just go into a little huddle and say, it's sad, but that's what just death does. So let's just get drunk and, and, and have a wake or whatever. And, uh, let's just that be the, you know, let's just, let's just be sad and mourn. And, you know, uh, what is the word? Live, live uh, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. They're saying suddenly, they're saying actually that's not what life is about at all. There is vastly more to it. It's vastly more exciting, it's vastly more disturbing. And the consequences of being on the inside of it are vastly greater uh, than have ever been perceived. In other words, this is really, really shocking. And I think that it took the, the, the apostolic group a long time to begin to get used to what this actually meant. Um, uh, the notion of the utter aliveness of God actually being a permanent force to which we have access starting now and which undoes our forms of security and therefore is tremendously threatening to the normal forms of order, keeping things together, which are done by cover up and by violence. In other words, something extraordinarily unviolent opens up the possibility of the reaction, a very violent reaction to it which is what we see in the Acts of the Apostles and what we see in the Book of the Apocalypse. We see how the, the birthing, if you like, of the new creation in our midst um, is something on the one hand, wonderful, peaceful, opening up to life, and on the other, constantly surrounded by uh, imprisonment, danger, death, lynching, <laughs> uh, the attempts to recreate fake order uh, because the new thing is too dangerous. And that what Jesus is doing in his eschatological teaching, those parables, is in a sense, is preparing us to live in the midst of that reality, the midst of the reality that he himself would then open up. So that's, uh, that's something of, of what I was attempting to do in, uh, in that. Uh, Wonderful. And, um, in that book. Then again, how does this um, eschatological imagination an approach to time contrast, I guess, with our dominant culture now that we find ourselves in. Um, so even in the sense, I guess, of how we're always rushing in constant state of busyness, although COVID-19 has, I guess, had some impact on that. How does that help us differentiate between the two, I guess? Ah. I think that the question of time is the one that's suddenly brought out by uh, by the gift of hope. The gift of hope is an eschatological gift uh, in the sense that 
part of that utter aliveness that opens out means that we begin to get a sense of a future coming upon us that is already here uh, in sign and which we're living into by faith. So if I feel like by faith, we're able to relax into the fact that it's coming upon us and by hope, we're being able to be stretched into making it actually alive in our midst. But it's the sense of a future coming upon us, which actually undoes the past because it undoes the memory, the way we tell our past. The way we tell our past have traditionally been in ways of self-justification, parts of the close down, parts of the convenient story, uh, which made me good by comparison with others. But if something is coming upon us that is the reverse of that, which is opening us up to a new belonging, then it's constantly undoing the way in which we're related to our past, how we're attached to the stories we tell about us, how even our bodies feel about our past, which is why part of the work of the spirit is undoing uh, trauma and uh, body memories of trauma and so on and so forth. Um, but what that means is we have the, the very strange thing, uh, which is not typical, in, in, of course, in, in our current understanding, whereby um, hope works to allow an entirely new present to be made present by the future undoing the past. <laughs> so yes, it's a very odd, it's a very odd sense of time. And it's because we have two sorts of time functioning simultaneously. Uh, the eternal time, which is a real form of time because it's, it includes a human coming to be. And the downward spiraling time, if you like, of futility and vanity, in which we're constantly trying to shore up who we are by means of grasping onto a past over against some other, some enemy that is threatening. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very odd, it's a very odd phenomenon. Um, uh, and I think one, you know, one of the ones that, that requires most, most thought about what, what is it about Christian faith that allows that which is coming upon us to open us up, including undoing uh, what uh, would a, so, what a sober vision would say is past and therefore can't be altered. <laughs> but in fact, it's it's all the relationality, uh, all the relationality that seems to have been formed by the past is in fact being opened up in a new way. Um, it, it, it's funny that the 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 doc this was something which was brought out to me by uh, by Dennis Turner, a very fine, a very fine domestic theologian, which I hadn't. He reminded me that um, traditionally, you know, the three virtues have, um, uh, the three theological virtues were attributed in the classical patristic past to three faculties of the soul. So faith was, was thought to link to reason, what you were supposed to know that was true. This was in the a rather mentalist understanding of, uh, uh, of faith, but that was one that the ancients. Uh, love was, of course, related to the will, um, because that was how you learned how to love. And guess what was the what was the human faculty that was related to hope? Well, the answer is memory. That which is transformed by 
hope is memory, just as that which is transformed by love is will, and that which is transformed by faith is reason. Uh, it's a very, very. It was a very, very interesting picture. But I think that that's, that's how we learn to, to be as ones who are uh, in the midst of things without being in the midst of them. And that doesn't mean in some painful running away type. It means actually being brought to life, being run by, being run by a different schedule in the, midst of, in the midst of things that are grinding on around us. I think that that is a very, very, very essential part of the Christian faith. And it's not a, it's not part of you know, um, decrying the world uh, in some evil sense. It's a part of rejoicing in how, what it looks like to be human is being taken into a new place. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that, James. And um, actually, and pleasure to meet you. And I hope to have the opportunity to do so in the flesh when these, uh, you know, inconveniences, COVID inconveniences are past. Marvellous. Thank you again, James, and God bless you.